0: Good morning. As you find your way to your seat, let's open with the word of prayer today, and our choir will sing, and then uh, we'll join them in some songs this morning. If you don't have this morning's bulletin, make sure you have uh, one of those. You can follow along as well. Uh, but let's open with the word of prayer today. Father, thank you for <clears throat> your mercy and your goodness in our lives. Uh, you are a wonderful, um, glorious God, and uh, you desire you know us fully. And you desire that we would know you. And so we gather around each other today, uh, Christians gathered around your word and uh, in each other's presence to declare your glory and to sing your praise, to lift up our voices and our hearts and our minds, our spirits um, toward you and to, um, to to pray and to uh, seek your face and to confess our sins and Uh, to repent in our minds and our hearts, and then to obey, to worship by obedience to your word. And so as we open it in a little while, we ask that you'd guide and direct our minds and hearts, uh, that you would teach us and point us to yourself. Uh, May we encourage one another. Uh, May we be uh, encouraged by uh, the fact that you have given yourself to redeem us, redeem a whole host of people around this world, and that some of them are gathered around each other this morning. And we rejoice in that, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, this morning, take your bulletin today. Come on down here. Um, take your bulletin if you would this morning. Take a look, and we'll see some things that are upcoming in the life and ministry of our church. And you see there at the top our adult. Bible groups, kids clubs, our breakout or individual adult Bible groups restarted again last week, kind of a new session, so if you weren't here last week, um, you didn't miss anything, sort of an introduction and meet and greet week, and we'd love to have you join us tonight for one of these, and you can see on the back it's listed uh, which classes we're offering. These will run from February to May. There's a men's class and a ladies' class, um, and then a grief-share class, Uh, there you see listed at the bottom, and then one about stewarding our lives, the things that God uh, gives us, our time, our thoughts, our ability, and anyone can attend uh, that class, and you can go as a couple if you'd like to that class as well. And you can see the descriptions there, and uh, those will be resuming again tonight at five o'clock. I hope if you haven't been a part of one of those before, uh, that you'll come and be a part of them. It's more than just uh, the lesson and the learning time, but the ability to be around other Christians and to fellowship and uh, grow one another in relationships with those in our church. And hopefully you'll be a part of those this evening. And you see as well, teen activity tonight uh, during that same time frame, 5 to 6.30, and a number of things that they're uh, doing, challenges and games, that kind of thing. So hopefully each of our teens will come and be ready to be a part of that uh, tonight as well. You see the note there about our junior camp. Um, coming up this summer, and there is an early registration date for that. You can get a little bit of a discount if you register this week, and you see our date there for our particular group and when we're going. And that's for kids that have finished the third grade, uh, who are currently in third grade through sixth grade. So this by this summer, they will finish third through uh, sixth grade. And then next week, uh, we're starting our men- morning men's prayer meeting before the morning service at 940. Back in the chapel, we'll meet for just a few minutes, probably just a a five minute or so uh, time to gather and pray. And uh, we can pray over requests. We can do a number of things together. But the sole focus of this particular prayer meeting will be about our time together, our morning worship service and ask the Lord to work in our hearts and to uh, to save people, to teach Christians and to help us to grow and uh, just a, a time together. So come a little bit early next week. Uh, men, you can grab a coffee there if you'd like and come back, and we'll meet for a few minutes and then give time to be back out and greet others uh, before the service. And you see some other upcoming events in the weeks ahead, and we're thankful and excited for each of those. If you would, if you turn over, we'll have the words on the screen as well, but we're going to sing a few songs this morning, and this is one of my favorite songs that we sing as a church. It's first one we're going to sing. It's actually in the middle there because it's two pages, but Chosen as his children. I want you to think about the words of that first verse. It says, Chosen by the Father's mercy and set apart to serve his Son. Sanctified by his own spirit. Praise the holy three in one, the trinity of our God. Then it says, Saved by resurrection power. Are you thankful for that this morning? Thankful that you're saved. Shielded in his faithful love. And not only does he save us, but he protects us. And now no enemy can tarnish what we find in the Lord. And he says, declares, I am born again. And we sing that out and declare God's uh, glorious salvation over our lives. So let's stand and we'll sing that t- together this morning. You can find your words there in the bulletin for this particular song, or you can find them on the screen as well. Let's declare and worship the Lord. If you would take your Bible this morning and open to the book of Matthew again. Matthew and today we will be in chapter 15 and reading into the first portion of chapter 16. So find your place in Matthew chapter 15 if you would. We'll read our text this morning and, uh, and we'll have one final song. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free. There should be a brown-backed Bible there in the seat in front of you and you're welcome to use that today if you're visiting with us or you uh, don't have a Bible of your own that you can call your own, then that's our gift to you today. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So if you would, look at Matthew chapter 15 and look down, if you would, at verse number 29. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been studying the book of Matthew now. I I, I notice that I keep saying a few weeks. It has been a few months. In fact, I believe we started not long after Easter last year, and I thought, well, maybe we could time it to get to the crucifixion and resurrection of Easter this year. I just don't think that's going to happen, and you notice if you would, uh, but it's been good. It's been a good study to see the Lord's teaching, His work, and His Word, and um, we're going to look again today at two two sections uh, that kind of uh, spill one right into the next. Matthew chapter 15, verse number 29, if you would, and you can follow along as I read out loud. And Jesus departed from Thence. And where is Thence? Just a quick reminder, last week, Jesus goes up to the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And he meets this Canaanite woman, uh, the woman that Mark says is Greek, Syrophoenician. So he's outside of the borders of Israel, kind of for the first, really, and only time. And we said this is an area that was supposed to be part of the promised land, but God's people had never really occupied it. They had never found it. So they looked at it with disdain. Jesus goes up there and has this interesting interaction with this Canaanite woman. And so in verse 29, he leaves there and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and, be, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. And then Jesus called his disciples unto him, and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, When should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they say, said, Seven and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes, gave thanks and brake them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And that did eat (coughs) were four thousand men, beside women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came unto the coast of Magdala. Uh, Some people think this is the home of Mary Magdalene by her name. Verse number one of chapter 16. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and, tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and uh, lowering. And O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. "...a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas." And he left them and departed. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said unto them, "...take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees." And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, Is because we have taken no bread." which, when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have not brought, uh, brought no bread? Do ye not un- yet understand? Neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets ye took up, neither the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets ye took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? Ye should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, And of the Sadducees, then understood they how he bade them, not beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. To ask the Lord to bless his word this morning, and if you would, in your own heart, ask the Lord to teach you today, and to speak to you personally, not just to our church and to people, but to yourself. Ask the Lord to teach us what we do not know, and to make us what we are not yet and to work in us what we cannot do ourselves. So let's ask Him. Father, thank You uh, for Your Word. It is in this Word that we long uh, to know You, and it is by this Word that we hope to trust You. And so this morning, may You reassure our hearts and minds of Your love, Your power, and Your wisdom. May You teach us personally and grow in us uh, a desire to follow You and You alone, May you help us, may you forgive us. We confess and we bring before you that there are times in our lives, and maybe even now in in this moment, our spirit recently has been that of Pharisees and Sadducees. We have been focused on self. We have been focused on things that are temporary and not eternal. And we ask you to forgive us, but we thank you that you promised to do so. And so we ask that you teach us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad that mercy came to us? As you read God's word, you'll find very quickly we could not get to it. Couldn't earn mercy, couldn't find mercy, couldn't establish anything in our own hearts to try to gain mercy from the Lord. And so we're thankful this morning that He came. To us. And we're going to study a passage today in which people missed it. People missed that Jesus came to them. People missed that mercy was standing right in front of them. And we're going to ask the Lord to teach us this morning and help us not to do the same. If you would look at again Matthew chapter fifteen, and then the beginning of chapter sixteen, we're primarily going to focus in the first few verses of chapter sixteen this morning and I prayed about and kind of sought the Lord on on where where we were going to head. In fact, you read verses 29 through 39. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It sounds exactly like an event that happened just one chapter previous in chapter 14 when Jesus fed 5,000 people. And so why are we what are we going to look at this morning? We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at verses 29 through 39 and draw our attention to some truth and then primarily again focus on Chapter 16, because I don't want to skip over it. I don't want to place into our minds as we study God's Word, we've been walking through Matthew verse by verse. I don't want to put in your minds that, oh, well, we just went past the feeding of the 4,000 because um, it, it was just like the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus just did it again. We, we, we don't want to miss and lose sight of the fact that Jesus mercifully worked miracle after miracle to display his glory and power to people, to reveal it to people, and we don't want to just get used to the fact that Jesus is God, like that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's not let, take, take, take that for granted or let it be lost on us, but I want you to notice the significant and primary difference, and we're going to see that in just a moment as we walk through. Before we do, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction that may help us um, figure out a little bit of where we're going this morning. I'm going to put a a picture up on uh, the screen for you this morning if I can do it. This, man, this is Harry Truman. Now, some of you are looking already. As soon as I said the word, some of you kind of looked. This is not Harry S. Truman, the 33rd President of the United States. This is Harry Randall Truman. Harry R. Truman, if you would. Mr. Truman was the operator of a small lodge nestled on the banks of Spirit Lake near Mount St. Helens. Back uh, in 1980, when he was <coughs> operating this, and in early 1980, January, February, geologists and scientists had begun to measure different seismic activity and blasts, and changing in temperatures and ground temperatures, and all sorts of different uh, noises and eruptions, and they they all started to warn that it was signaling a major event is coming, uh, for particularly for. Mount St. Helens and in that area. So they'd begun to warn of it over and over and over again. <clears throat> Harry Randall Truman was an 83-year-old man at that point. He had survived the sinking of his troop ship by a German submarine in World War II, and he wasn't about to leave his home as the caretaker of the lodge because of some expert's opinion. And he said, we've heard these before, we felt this before. In fact, journalists and reporters started to come from all around the country for a couple months to interview people that had decided to stay in the area. In fact, have, have any you, did any of you ever go before 1980? You've been to, and you saw Mount St. Helens before it blew up. Anybody? seen Anybody seen it after or flew, flew in All right, a few people. So people started to draw to it and they started to report. There's people staying, there's people not leaving. And he began to be one of the faces, just the primary faces of people that were staying. He was fiery and cantankerous and kind of comical and a lot of different things and they asked him why aren't you leaving and he says i don't have any idea whether or not it's going to blow up or not but i don't believe he said i believe it might but i don't believe it to the point that i'm going to pack up and leave and then he said this area is heavily timbered there's 250 foot tall trees spirit lake is between my house and the mountain it's about a mile away that mountain ain't gonna hurt me that was his final words on camera the final eruption of Mount St. Helens in May of 1980 blew the entire top off of the mountain. It looked like this a black cloud and plume, a thousand feet thick, barreled down the mountain at an estimated 350 miles an hour. It twisted and turned and incinerated, uh, incinerated disintegrated 250 t- foot tall fir trees. It vaporized Spirit Lake and covered Harry Truman's home in 150 feet thick rock, debris, and ash. They never found the lodge, and they never found any sign of Mr. Truman. And I think this morning we could summarize it this way. Jesus gives us a warning, and it is foolish to recognize danger and think that we will somehow be exempt from its consequences if we linger too long. In in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gives a very stark warning. He warns his disciples. And you find that in verse number 6 of chapter 16. Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's his warning. It's a significant thing. There's not all that often in Jesus' teaching where he just specifically said, here is a warning. I am warning you. We all communicate that way sometimes with people and uh, I had one of those experiences yesterday, or Friday yeah, Friday afternoon with my, one of my children. I was on a ladder fixing a gutter that had come loose. And so I'm about uh, 19, 20 feet up in the air and fixing the gutter. And I look down and my children are coming and they're going to go inside right under the ladder, which makes me a little nervous in the first place. But they're walking in and my youngest son has two, about two foot long sticks in his hand. And I turn to him and off the ladder I say, Lex, you cannot take those inside. I just know bad things are going to happen if that's the case. He had been using them as drumsticks and spears and arrows, and I said, you can't take those inside. And he turns around, and like any young four-year-old boy would do, he promptly throws them as hard, throws the first one as hard as he can, trying to throw it to wood, missing his sister's face by a mere six inches or so. Lex, do not throw those. And he looks up at me, and I said, do not throw that. You're going to hit your sister. Do not Throw it. And he looks at me, and you could just tell in his mind he's computing risk reward ratio. <laughs> you're very high. I, you know, I have you at my mercy because you're 20 feet in the air. And I want to, if you do that, you are going to be in trouble. And um, I will not, I won't, I'm not going to tell on my four year old, but he did. There were consequences for his decision that he made just a few moments after that. Sometimes we are warned, but we miss the consequence. We we, we miss the warning uh, because we do not think the consequences could be but so great. We don't think they could impact our lives but so much. And so we would do well to take heed of Jesus' warning this morning. And what I want to do, I just want to set the background. Jesus sounds an alarm, gives us this warning, and the question is, will we heed it or will we linger? Because when we first read it and he says beware the leaven of the pharisees and of the sadducees like that's not that that's probably not in any inspirational book that you've read in your lifetime it's not in any self-help book it's not you know you have the calendars people don't have calendars anymore you have whatever on your phone and people show inspirational quotes that come across and you put them nobody hangs this on the wall like we put you know, gather, eat, and love your family. You know, you you hang those signs on your wall. No one puts, beware the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware the leaven. No one puts that in their house. Yet, it's a significant warning and truth from Jesus. And he gives it to us because we naturally ignore this in our lives sometimes. And yet Jesus is speaking to us still. So let's set the background for a moment and go back to chapter 15. Last week, we spent a lot of time most of the sermon was background on Tyre and Sidon. Why is it so significant that was Jesus was going there? So let's summarize all of last week's sermon in just a couple of sentences. Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, a place that Israel viewed their own failure. They, they looked at the people that were there. We never occupied. We never drove them out. We never claimed the promise that God gave us. It was a significant uh, port of... Uh, different merchants and different things, they, they may die there. They ship spices from Asia to Rome through those two cities. It was one of the more lavish areas of uh, that portion near Israel of the time. And they just always would look at it with disdain. It was looked at as a wicked set of cities. And yet Jesus goes there. And when Jesus goes there, remember we said when you read last week's passage and Jesus, he ignores her and doesn't speak to her. Then he says, I, I'm not going to talk to you because you're not of the house of Israel. I came for Israel. And then he even says something that sounds almost offensive. He says, why would I take from children and give to dogs? And we said, when we read that, we're offended in our hearts. Why, why would Jesus speak that way? But there's things that are true of Jesus, that Jesus always knows people's hearts, and Jesus always knows what he's going to do. And so before he ever entered that conversation with her, he knew the woman's heart, and he knew what he was going to do. And so he said last week, he entered into that conversation not to test her faith and say, I need to see if you have faith, but rather by his silence and by his difficulty in a way to prove to his disciples and to draw her faith into the light to be displayed and and to glorify God through it. And so he does. And so it is not that he is speaking down to Gentile people and that weren't Jews, but rather he is proving to his apostles and disciples, I did not literally come for just the Jews. I came for the Jew first And from there, your responsibility is to go to the world. Now, in our passage in Matthew 15, verse 29, it says, He departed from thence and came nigh to the Sea of Galilee. Why is this a significant thing? So he returns to the Sea of Galilee, but he takes a very interesting route or way to get there. He came, we don't have it described, the exact location in this passage, But he actually comes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to read the parallel passage in Mark and Luke, for time's sake, we won't this morning. But he's going to the eastern side of the lake. And there's a few things that hint at this. Mark in chapter 7 says that when he came to the Sea of Galilee at this time, he came through the region of Decapolis, right through. There's 10 cities. It literally means 10 cities. It's a group of 10 cities, primarily Gentile, very few. Jewish people living there. The Jewish culture is not prominent. And so he comes through this region of ten cities to get to Galilee. It also says that he gathered there and the people were and that they were in a wilderness. Well, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is totally scattered with just city after city and town after town, fishing village after fishing village. There wasn't a lot of wilderness, excuse me, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's probably on the eastern side because of that. But there's also... Another significant thing, you notice that the response when he finishes all the healing and he finishes and, and he's about to go in uh, into feeding this group of people. Look in verse 32. How do they respond when he heals the people? They glorified the God of who? Israel. Well, if he's healing a bunch of Jewish people, why would it need to be said that they were glorifying the God of Israel? They were just glorifying their God. So it's a significant thing. He goes through this Gentile region of Decapolis. He's probably in the wilderness on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's ministering. I think all of those clues hint to us. He is ministering to multitudes of Gentile people, not Jewish people. It's a very different miracle than the 5,000. Now, there were some Gentiles mixed in the feeding of the 5,000. But where he did it, when he did it, and who was following him, is primarily the people from galilee of the jewish faith and jewish religion now he goes over here and on the other side is gentile people this passage one right after the next the woman the canaanite greek woman that jesus ministers to and then he goes and does the same work he does not withhold his miracles from the gentiles He does not withhold his good nature. I think that he even is teaching them because how else would they glorify the God of Israel without knowing about him? So he is speaking to them. He is being kind to them. He is healing them. He is teaching them. And he even does the exact same miracle and feeding them for the same reason. He has compassion on them. What is Jesus displaying in the second half of Matthew 15? That he has truly come for all people. He has come for all of the world. He is telling his disciples who are going to be the ones that take the gospel to the world. He is showing by example to them. I'm not coming just for Israel. I am coming from people from every race, tribe, tongue, kindred, nation, background, religion, uh, political type, economic type. I am coming for anyone that comes by faith to the gospel. And Jesus teaches us that. He exemplifies that. Through the second half of chapter 15. It shouldn't be lost on us the significance that Jesus is declaring to these people that the gospel is for all men. So he extends mercy to all of these people, he has compassion on them. He does exactly for those, watch this, he does for those that were different than him, he does exactly what he did for those that were like him in the sense of their background, in the sense of their creed and their nation and even their religious upbringing. He does the same thing for those that were very different than he was that he does for those that are much like him. And why? Why would he do that? Because of the nature of the gospel. So he leaves. He leaves this area in the last verse of chapter 15 and verse 39. And he's sent away to the multitude and he send away the multitude, and he takes a ship, and he comes to the coast of Magdala, or Magdala. And then, meeting him there, interestingly enough, the beginning of chapter 16, begins very much like the beginning of chapter 15, where the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem come to Jesus, and they come arguing with him. And remember what they do at the beginning of chapter 15? They come to him, and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? And we had an old sermon on that was not just about hygiene for them. It was, why are they not following our code? That our, He says, why do they disobey the elders? Jesus' response to them is interesting. He doesn't argue whether they should or shouldn't wash hands. He says, you asked me why my disciples disobey your leaders. I'm asking you, why do you disobey God? God has given you a command, honor your father and your mother, and that may include taking care of them in their old age. It may include giving to them resources and providing for them. And you have found a loophole in that. You consecrate your stuff to God, and so you can't give it to your parents, so you disobey God's fifth command. Why are you disobeying God, worried about whether my disciples obey? And he, he memory, identifies their issue. He says, you have taught as doctrine the commandments of men. And that was their big issue. Jesus goes after them, and He goes after them hard. And now you're going to find in chapter 16, they take a little different approach. It's like they can't defeat Him by asking Him about tradition. So now what are they going to do in verse 16? It's interesting to note who, what groups are involved here. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting, desired Him that He would show them a sign from heaven. So you have Pharisees and Sadducees. And I think that those are mentioned so often, In scripture, together that we just assume they're like best friends. They're buddies. We're gonna get to that in a moment. They are not best friends, they do not even like each other. And so he rebukes them. They come saying, Give us a sign from heaven, but Jesus knows their hearts. He replies to them with a rebuke. In fact, he gives them this interesting statement about the sky being red and judging weather by it. He says, You can judge. Your day's weather by the sky, but you have missed the Savior from heaven. You can judge what type of day you may have by what color is in the heavens, but you have literally missed. And he says, You are hypocrites. You are empty. You are vain. You are not seeking God. And he tells them, You're only going to get the sign of Jonah. And we won't spend a lot of time there. We've, he's actually already referenced that too. The Pharisees at one point earlier in Matthew says you're going to get the sign of Jonah. And he actually goes into detail. He says, for as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and then came up, so the Son of Man will be laid, so I will be laid in the earth in my death to be buried. And after three days, I will rise again. And I think that they would have hated that thought in some ways because there's a lot of other implications. Remember, Jesus has just been ministering to Gentiles. Who was Jonah the prophet to? He was not a prophet to Israel. He was a prophet to get the wicked people to repent. And so he says to the Pharisees, Hey, look, I've just been ministering to all these Gentiles. You're asking me for a sign. Here's going to be your sign. I'm going to die. I'm going to be in the earth for three days. I'm going to raise from the dead. And when I do, wicked people around the world are going to be able to know God in a personal way through the gospel, through the power of life and the resurrection that I will give. So his response to them is one that is... Rebuking, It is wise, it is crafty, but it is pointed. And Jesus feels, Jesus has to be feeling a passionate, mournful response at this point to the people of his own region. He is bringing his ministry in Galilee to a close. We showed you a map last week of kind of where Jesus had been ministering all around his hometown and these villages that he grew up around in these cities and towns. And he had had great multitudes, and he had preached, and he had worked miracles, and hundreds, most likely thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people had come to Jesus, and maybe even recognized him for who he is, but many more. Remember when Luke says, after the feeding of the 5,000, they keep following him, they keep following, keep following him, and he says, hey, look, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to leave everything behind, you've got to uh, take up your cross and follow me. If you don't hate your own mother, brother, sister, if you, if you don't turn away from your own family and follow and serve me, you can't be my disciple. And what does it say? That from that point, many of them turned away and never followed him again. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you also turn away? So while Jesus is all having these big multitudes following him, he's also watching people be influenced in a way that they will consistently turn away from him. And it has to be weighing heavy on his heart. Very soon, he's going to leave Galilee and head to Judah, head to Jerusalem, and he's never going to return. And Jesus comes and he sees these Pharisees, and at some point, the Pharisees, he he leaves their presence. And I want to think about those words for a moment this morning. Notice, if you would, the end of chapter uh, 15, verse 39. He sent away the multitude, took ship. Notice what it says. And he came. Jesus came, and came into the coast of Magdala. Jesus came there. And then what happens in verse number 4? Notice the end of the verse. And he left them. How, how sad. Religious people, rulers... People that know the law and obey it. They're passionate about it. They're influencing society. The Sadducees are doing it in a political way. Influencing their society for good. What are they trying to do? All these great things. And yet they miss the Savior. He comes to their presence. And their reaction to him, it says that he left them. In fact, the word that it uses, it's there, it's different. other places, he draws away to go be alone when he has conflict. When the Pharisees quite often... He departs, it says he would depart and he would be drawn away to be alone. He would step away from the conflict for a moment. The wording here is very different. It gives a finality to leave or to break away with the thought of completion. He leaves them because they will not see him. They reject him. And he gives this warning. Here's his response. Notice in verse number five. His disciples... They had come to the other side. He kind of gives us a background to the rest of the account. He says that they had forgotten to bring any bread with them from from the feeding of the 4,000 with the baskets of bread. They don't bring any with them. And so then in verse number 6, Jesus turns them and he warns them. You can kind of hear the sorrow in his voice. Take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And I think that this warning looks in two directions. It looks backward and it looks forward. Jesus looks around the shore of Galilee and he sees the city of Capernaum. He maybe can, depending on how far he could see that day, he could see Gennesaret where he had just been. He's in the city of Magdala and he's thinking about even his own city just north of Nazareth and Bethsaida and all these places that he has been. And he's looking back and he's seeing how influential the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been in these people's lives, that they cannot fully follow Jesus because he's not what they expect He's not a religious guru like the Pharisees who's going to set up a religious kingdom, vanquish Rome, and let them rule over all their foes. He's not a political king that's going to set up the the new structure of the kingdom of Israel that the Sadducees would have wanted. He's not that savior, and so he ends up not being the savior that they want. And looking backward, he sees the influence that these people have had, but more than that, their spirit has had. But also looking forward, he knows the warning. You say, well, what do you mean? When Jesus comes in to the city of Jerusalem in just a, a, a few months after this, Jesus comes in the city of Jerusalem, people bow down and sing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're rejoicing. The Messiah has come, the people of Jerusalem. He really hasn't been to Jerusalem much in his ministry or really at all in this recorded way. And they're thinking, this guy that works miracles, this great teacher, he's here. He's the Messiah. He's come. Hosanna, praise the Lord. He's here. And then a few days later, the same voices do not sing Hosanna, but they shout, crucify him. What happened between those two? Pharisees and Sadducees got a hold of those people. And so Jesus warning here to his disciples, he knows looking back, there are many more people that probably would have followed me if it wasn't for this attitude and spirit. And he looks forward and says, I'm, I'm going to die because of this attitude and because of this spirit. And he warns them. What is it? Luke actually outlines it for us in the parallel passage. He says, Though beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He says, which is hypocrisy. They were hypocrites. They were resolved not to see Jesus, but to see themselves. Their hypocrisy was not just pretending or a false appearance of spiritual wisdom. It wasn't hypocrisy like we would even just say saying one thing and doing something different. It was deeper than that. Wrote it this way, it's an empty display that was imposing to the eyes of men, but only fluff to the eyes of God. Their outward ceremonies, their social influence were in the sight of God, nothing more than childish trifles. Jesus calls it the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? He's comparing it to yeast or leaven like it would do to bread. I'm going to put up, if I can find it, Another picture, you kind of have this little before and after of yeast. A few minutes, it's gone into a loaf a few minutes before and a few minutes after. This is what he's getting them to picture. Yeast itself was not wrong. The Jews could actually eat it in their diet except for at the Passover. But what he's picturing, it's often used by Jesus in other places in Scripture to picture sin. Why? Because once it enters, it can't be separated back out, it feels like. It affects the whole. It's not just part of it. You drop some yeast on one part. It permeates and it affects the whole thing. And Jesus says what they've done is their spirit and their attitude has gotten in this hip- hypocritical nature in their life and in their heart. It's gotten in. It's permeated. They have fluffed up, but there's nothing to them. You punch them with, their fing- with your finger, you press on it, and just pfft, there's nothing to it. And Jesus says, this is what I see. You see these people. You see these great religious rulers and leaders. I see fluff. And when they do their work, and Israel sees their actions, Israel sees the Pharisees' actions, but when they do their work before God, he sees nothing. It's interesting, there are different results. When the Pharisees do work, Israel glorified the Pharisees. When Jesus does His work, They glorify God. So let's just note, we're just going to really just mention these three things and we'll be done just trying to bring it to a point of application. We could spend a lot of time studying the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their background, their differences. But the truth is, I may never be able to convince you today, no matter how long we spend, that you have a problem that the Pharisees did, that you have a problem that a religious group of uh, political influencers from Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that you really have the same heart issue that they do, that I have the same difficulty and temptation that they do. That may be difficult to do based on their background and their culture. We could spend a lot of time there. But let's just look at their words in this short little passage. And what does it reveal? You see, number one, what's their attitude? What is their hypocrisy? Well, you may say, I don't struggle with hypocrisy. I, seem, I feel like I'm a pretty real person. Well, what was their hypocrisy? How was it categorized or how was it described, characterized? Number one, their spirit, they were not concerned with truth. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came, verse one, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. That they came after him to tempt him. It's the same word to test or to tempt that's used of Satan in Matthew 4, that Jesus that he came before Jesus to tempt or to test him there in the wilderness. They now want to do the same thing. They are not concerned with truth. In the same way, in the beginning of chapter fifteen, their concern is, "Why don't your disciples obey us?" And now they come to Jesus and they say, "Give us a sign," not because they were going to believe. In fact, they asked Jesus for a specific sign. They said, "Give us a sign from heaven." Why would that have been significant? Well, the Sadducees wouldn't have believed that it could happen. The, the Sadducees firmly believed they were they were scriptural literalists. They they did not they believed in certain parts and aspects of the Old Testament. Scripture. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in supernatural events or actions. They did not even believe in the afterlife. They believed that the soul was destroyed after death. They were the least spiritual religious group that you could possibly imagine. And yet they were the ones that were running the temple. They had figured out a way to make money on it. And they had figured out a way to be very rich and influence the society around them by their false religion, but their riches. They did not believe that there were great miracles like this. So when they say, show us a sign from heaven, they weren't looking for truth. They were trying to disprove Jesus. And the Pharisees, though they did believe in the supernatural, they did believe in miracles. Notice the way they say it, a sign from heaven. Had Jesus not done enough miracles? Remember, they had already accused Jesus of being satanic, of devilish. Why? Jesus' miracles were not what they wanted. They were not concerned with the truth of who the Messiah, who the Savior really is. They set a sign from heaven because the Pharisees believed that Satan had power on earth, but not in the literal heavens, nothing in the sky, that Satan's domain was this physical Earth. They had no scriptural basis for that, but that's what they believed. So they said, if he's really God, he can do something from heaven. That could have been fire from heaven like Elijah uh, or, or a man from heaven like uh, Moses or holding the sun and the moon still. They said, show us a sign from heaven. But they had no concern for real truth. You see, Jesus' miracles were different. What, what were most of Jesus' miracles categorized? So you can say it this way. He helped people, he healed people, and he fed them. Almost all of his miracles could be confined to those three categories. He helped them water into wine when they're having the feast, stilling the storm when the disciples are in trouble. He healed them like we just read, described a moment ago. He fed them and provided for them. His sacrifice or his uh, miracles were sacrificial in a way. They displayed God's glory, but they also displayed God's love, care, and concern. The miracle that they asked for, was one of selfish reasons and motivations. They wanted to see something for themselves. Notice their spirit second. Number two, it was, it was man-centered. They weren't at all concerned with the truth. They had no focus on that. They were focused on self. They came to test Him. They wanted to be right, and they wanted Him to be wrong. They wanted to be proved great, and they wanted Him to be proved foolish. They did not come seeking truth, and they did not come seeking God. Notice even the description how they phrase it. Send us a sign from heaven. Notice it says from heaven, meaning you give us something. Work a miracle that that shows us greatness, that displays something for us. Even just the way that they speak about it shows the man-centeredness. In other words, here's what they say, paraphrasing. If you're really God... You impress us, do something for us, rather than if they actually had any inclination that he was actually God, their spirit would have, should have been, we will glorify you. We will do something to lift you up. We will do something in your service, but rather it shows that they did not know the character and the real nature of God. They didn't know Him. They did all sorts of godly stuff and memorized all sorts of God things, but they did not know God. Because if they did, they would understand they are to be in submission to His greatness and glory, not His greatness and glory to be in submission to their desires and wants and needs. You you see here how hypocrisy is more than just, I'm faking it. Hypocrisy is, I don't know God, but I say that I do. He says, that they're con- they're not concerned with the truth. It's man-centered and notice the final thing here. They're focused on the temporal or the, at least you can say it this way. They understand the temporary or the temporal, the earthly, but not the eternal. Jesus kind of hits it right on the head. He says, "Look, you're asking me for a sign from heaven. You wake up every day and, you know, I I was looking into this a little bit more this week. I've I've always heard the phrase red sky at night and where Depending on where you live, could be Sailor's Delight, Farmer's Delight, whoever's delight, it's Red Sky at night. That's a good thing, right? That's what you say. It's a high-pressure system which represents more stable weather. There's a, a good chance that the day tomorrow is going to have good, stable weather. Red Sky in the morning, it shows a low-pressure system. It could be more volatile. There's a higher chance for rain and for storms. And he says to them, you wake up and you look at the skies and you judge that as, as a sign of what the weather's going to be like. And yet God has sent his son to stand in front of you and you've missed it. You live your life based on the color that's outside in the morning. But you're demanding of God something that in a way that he should serve you. It's totally twisted. They understand what is temporary, but they do not understand what is eternal. Notice this is when he comes after them a little bit more firmly. A wicked, adulterous generation seeks after, or after a sign. No sign is going to be given you but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them. And man, that is sad, isn't it? That, that someone's attitude and spirit could cause Jesus to go away. It's not that Jesus didn't love and care for them. In fact, I would argue the opposite. Because his last words to them is, I will give you a sign I will raise from the dead. <laughs> So in essence, they reject him. And the last thing he does is he, he gives them a hint of preaching the gospel to them. I'll give you a sign. I'm going to die and race from the dead. Maybe then you'll believe. So it's not that Jesus rejects them forever and they have no place. But he just realizes in knowing their hearts, they are not there right now. I I'm not going to do anything. I can't do anything in their lives. What is it that led him to do this? It was men that were not concerned with truth. Men that were completely man-centered. And they understood temporary things, but not eternal things. That's what they were focused on. That's what they viewed. Now let's ask ourselves the question as we apply and close. You say, "Well, I'm not like the Pharisees and Sadducees." You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't agree on almost anything, except that they didn't like Jesus. And for instance, I won't. I won't read it all for time's sake. In Acts chapter number twenty-three, Paul. You know, I have to turn there, but Paul is being held in front of the council of the Sanhedrin, which was half Pharisee, half Sadducee. And Paul's very clever. You know what he does? He says, I'm a Pharisee. And he says to them, I am here being tried for my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And he knew that the two of them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, disagreed so vehemently on that thought that it was going to cause an uproar. And it does. They, they get into such an argument and uprising violently against each other that it says that Paul's guard actually took him out and removed him from the council for his own safety, so that 's how much they disagreed with each other. They were judging against Paul, both of them. Paul mentions like one thing, and like cats and dogs, they just go at it. They hated each other, but what they had in common they did not want truth, they were man centered, focused on self, and they were completely focused on the here and now, not on eternity and not on spiritual things. So you may think, I don't have anything in common with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let me ask you this morning, how much do you love truth? How much do you love and want to grow in the truth? So what do you mean? We are told that God's word is truth. How focused am I on God's word in my own life? Do I come to Jesus and God in my prayers telling him everything I think he should do and what his will should be without ever even consulting what he has told me in his word? Is his will for my life in the first place? We demand things of God. Give us a sign. Do something in our lives. I'll serve you better if you do more for me. We're man-centered people. Man-centered in our Worship in our lives, in our declaration, in what we want others to know about us, and what we want our involvement in even the church to be, in our homes, and in our families. We're not focused on the truth of God's word that he has given to us. The Bible, I spend so little time sometimes in this, and yet I wonder why it is that Jesus isn't working in me. But I'm not focused on truth. I'm focused on self. And I'm highly focused on what is right now temporary, what will fade, what will go away. It's an interesting study, all the things that Jesus taught in the New Testament, but Jesus taught that were temporary, that don't matter. So you say, are are you like a Pharisee and Sadducee? No, no, I'm not. Are you a hypocrite? No, no, I am not a hypocrite. (laughs) Do you love God's word and prioritize it? Do you think and spend most of your life living for self? Uh, is most of your life focused on what is here and now and not what God has said will last forever? We're probably more like them than we think. And I'll close with this. I know I've said I'll close ten times. This is the eleventh time and the final one. Notice what he says to the disciples, because that's who his warning is given to, isn't it? He he gives the Pharisees said she's a warning, but he knows their hearts. Who he really is concerned for is his followers. He turns to them and he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And notice their response. This is awesome. Like you picture Jesus. He's on the shore of Galilee. The sunset. It's the music setting. It's sad. He's mournful. He's speaking to them in wisdom. Beware. Don't be like them. And the disciples are like, oh man, we forgot all that bread. We forgot all the baskets of bread on the other side. What are we thinking? And, and you know, one of the disciples are trying to whisper. He elbows the other one. He knows. He knows we left the bread, all that bread he made over there on the other side. He knows that we left it. <laughs> and they don't get it. They miss Jesus' teaching. And we are just we are just like that. We read God's word and we and we miss it the first time. But aren't you glad that God is merciful? Notice. He says in verse 7, or verse 8. Jesus perceives this, and he says to them, Oh, you have little faith, why reason yourselves because you have brought no bread? He says, Why are you talking about bread? I didn't say anything about bread. I said, leaven. don't you understand? Do you not understand? Neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you took up. If I want bread and, and need it, we'll just make it. <laughs> and then he says, Neither are the seven loaves of 4,000, and how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I speak to you Bake it not to you concerning bread, but they should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we just condemn the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Because they weren't concerned with truth, or they weren't focused on truth. They were man-centered, and they were focused on what was temporary, not what was eternal. What, have, what do we see about his disciples in this interaction? They are not focused on truth. Jesus teaches them. And they totally miss it. And they think that he's talking about their failure and their lack of resources and that he's disappointed in them. But what he's actually trying to do is teach and help their heart. (laughs) And they're not focused on truth. Then they're man-centered because they said, we have forgotten the bread. Jesus says to them, I'm trying to teach you something. And they're focused on self. We've forgotten. Look at what we did. Look at our mistakes and failures before God rather than looking at God's grace and mercy. And then notice they're focused on the bread. Like, what do we have physically? They're focused on their lack of resource. So what do we find in the apostles, the disciples, as he closes? He says, they're not concerned with truth. They're not focused on truth. They're centered on themselves. And they're focused on the temporary, not the eternal. I love this in verse 12. Then understood they how he bade them, not beware of the leaven of the bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Notice this. I love this about Simon. Then they got it then they understood. And so I don't know where you are in your life this morning. Are we more where the Pharisees and Sadducees are? Where Jesus tries to give us truth? He's trying to tell, he's trying to teach us something in our lives. I, whatever it is, whatever the Holy Spirit's working in you right now, he's trying to work and change in your life. Are we more like the Pharisees and Sadducees where Jesus eventually just has to leave? Or are we like the disciples who though we fail, Eventually, they got it. And let's ask the Lord that he would help us be the latter. Let's pray. Lord, you are you're good to be merciful to us, too good for us. Too good for what we deserve. Too good for what we desire with our own lives and our own issues. But you're not too good to be true. In fact, your truth counters everything that we think in our lives and what we deserve. And we sometimes get so focused on what is temporary. I'm so focused on my job, my house, my hobbies, my lack of resources, my excess and gain of resources, things that will go away focused on myself and I'm not anchored in your truth may your spirit do its work and uh, work in the lives of Christians this morning praise you for this in Jesus name as you stand this morning here at your, there at your seat here at this altar Christian if you something the Lord has laid on your heart let's take it before him repent of our sin turn and follow him Let's get it like the disciples. Let's seek to understand. Focus on truth, center on God, and look to the eternal. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have focused on religion, what you can do, how you please God, or how you've disappointed Him. We say it all the time. In, in an invitation like this, anytime in our church you can come forward and we have somebody that will... Take you and teach you how you can know Jesus in a personal way. You can know not religion, but relationship with God. You can find us now. You can find us after the service. If God's working in your heart this morning, you may repent and turn to Him. Let's sing this song of invitation and rejoice and lift Him up and declare our love for Him.
1: I love you, Lord. My voice to worship You. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what You hear. May it be a sweet sound in your
0: ear. And uh, you can be seated for just a moment, we're going to dismiss in just a moment, but two things, by the way of uh, church business, if I could have the Waku's, you can just stand for just a second, wave at us over here, Stan and Deb Walk, who they came a couple of weeks ago to join the membership of our church, and they joined and then they left, and Went away. No, I'm just kidding. Mrs. Walker went down to visit some family and then celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary. What was it? 41st, 41st wedding anniversary uh, last week. And uh, so we're glad they're back with us this week. But they have come into the membership of our church. And if you're excited about that, let me know by saying amen. amen. And we're glad for that. And uh, you can be seated. And then uh, we let you know Wednesday of the passing of um, Miss Judy Knapp, who's been part of our church and our life here the Knapp family has for uh, many many years and many of you expressed your concern and condolences and and, and thanks for her and uh, brother Knapp asked if he could just say a, a quick word to you as a church you know she's had some health issues the last uh, couple years and uh, the lord has brought her through those delivered her from those and she's whole this morning but i told him that'd be fine and he'll greet you for a moment and then we'll be dismissed in prayer
1: Been so long since we've been here, I realize there are people who have come to the church and joined the church who do not even know who I am. I'm Jack Knapp, and I'm the husband of Judy Knapp. We've been members of the church since 1968, 1986, excuse me. I always had troll dyslexia. The reason you have not seen me lately is because on August 13th, 1960, I stood before a pastor with the most beautiful woman in the world, sorry to tell you other men that, uh, you didn't know that, but I did, that I got the best. And I made a sacred vow to God at that time that I would love, cherish, honor the woman that he gave me in sickness and in health. I vowed to honor that, and on Tuesday morning, the greatest gift that God gave me other than my salvation he called to his side in heaven I just want to thank the church for your prayers and support for the ministry that God gave Judy and me here in Virginia for over 30 years at her request on Saturday Pastor James came and we had a memorial service in our home with our family to honor the woman that God loaned to us for 62 and a half years. Judy's favorite hymn was Channels Only and all Judy ever wanted to be was a channel of blessing to others. Her life verse was Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. I could stand here for hours and tell you how God had used her in my life and in the lives of others. But all I want to do is just thank this church. You've been such a blessing to us all these years. And on her behalf, I say thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Let's have a word of prayer. And um, some of you have walked this road before and you've walked it recently. And uh, we want to be a help and encouragement to Brother Knapp. And uh, let's have a word of prayer over him even now as a church, married for more than 60 years. And um, uh, some of you men that have been here and walked there, I hope that you'll seek to encourage him. As he's been an encouragement to us for the last two or three years especially and helped our church through many things. Let's have a word of prayer over him now as a church will be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for um, Brother Knapp and for his family, for his faithfulness um, throughout his life, and uh, for his wife's faithfulness, her testimony. And uh, we know that it is a difficult thing to, um, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present Amen. with the Lord. Amen. But we know that uh, it's a difficult thing for us as humans to be absent from the ones that we love. Mm. And so we, uh, we ask that you guide and uplift uh, Brother Knapp, And then many in our church, those in our church, in the last few months have lost loved ones. And um, may you guide and direct and strengthen and continue to fill with your hope through the light of the gospel. We love you and we praise you for your goodness to us. And um, we declare your glory today in Jesus' name.